To what extent will the Biden administration modify U.S. policy towards the Middle East? To what extent will it maintain the policies of Donald Trump? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Ayn Rabbani, and for our first episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Noam Chomsky, often described as the world's leading public intellectual. A path-breaking linguist and professor emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he initially came to political prominence on account of his opposition to the Vietnam War, which earned him a place on Richard Nixon's official enemies list. Noam Chomsky authored his first book on the Middle East in the 1970s and has since published numerous books and articles further exploring the relationship between the United States and the region. Most notably, the fateful triangle, the United States, Israel, and the Palestinians. Will the United States rejoin the Iran nuclear agreement? Will it end the devastating war against Yemen? Can peace in the Middle East be achieved without Jared? We will be discussing these and related questions with Noam Chomsky for the next 45 minutes. Professor Chomsky, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. Um, perhaps to start off, um, many people expect the Biden administration's policies towards the Middle East to pick up where Obama left off in 2016. During the campaign, uh, Joe Biden vowed to rejoin the Iranian nuclear agreement, the one from which Trump withdrew, to end U.S. participation in the war against Yemen, which was initiated during Obama's second term, and to withdraw American support for formal Israeli annexation of the West Bank. Others have looked at Biden's initial policy positions, such as, that, such as the demand that Iran first comply with an agreement that the U.S. has yet to rejoin, and the continuation of Trump sanctions against the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and suggested that in important respects, there's also a con continuation of Trump's policies under the current administration. How do you see the, uh, things developing? There ha uh, Biden has not said much about the Middle East. Uh, he has, uh, as you say, with regard to Iran, simply picked up Trump's policies and is pursuing them without change. Uh, Trump's position was, uh, we left the JCPOA, the joint agreement with Iran, because it's our right to violate international law and do anything we like. Remember, that's a violation of Security Council orders, which ordered all countries to abide by the JCPOA. Uh, the US had signed that. Trump dismantled that, said, it's your fault. We do not, we're not, we don't want to have this agreement. We have to have an agreement which imposes much harsher restrictions on you. And unless you agree to that, we will impose extremely savage sanctions, which will wreck your economy. And furthermore, since we're the United States, the international godfather, other countries have to abide by our sanctions. Europe doesn't like them. Uh, United Nations opposed them but uh, they have no choice. They abide by US sanctions or they get expelled from the 
international financial system, which is mostly run through New York. Uh, the uh, Trump's uh, Biden has simply picked up the same policy. He said, yes, uh, I'll, we're not going to go back to the JCPOA. He already said then it has to be a much stronger agreement, pretty much what Trump demanded. And furthermore, you have to make the first step uh, uh, re reduce any any steps you've taken in retaliation to our withdrawing from the agreement. You have to with withdraw those until you do. We maintain the sanctions, meaning everyone else has to abide by them. We should bear in mind how much of how extraordinary what an extraordinary illustration this is of. US global power. I mean, there's no other country in the world could do anything remotely like this. Nothing. It's not even imaginable. And it's, if you look at it closely, it's even more astounding. Uh, the UN sanctions actually expired. Uh, um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo addressed the United Nations and said, we want you to restore the sanctions. The Security Council to, to, was totally opposed. All the uh, five veto, all of all U.S. allies, all the veto uh, uh, bearing countries opposed it. Uh, almost unanimous opposition. So how did the U.S. react? Mike Pompeo returned to the Security Council and said, "Sorry, you are reinstituting the sanctions." They did. You can't uh, step on the toes of the Godfather. Uh, it's an amazing power play. Uh, Biden has simply continued it. There's been, in fact, they say straight out that they're simply continuing the Trump policies. So yes, Biden said, we, we, we will not go back to the, the joint agreement that's passed, but we will agree to a further, a, a new agreement to the Trump agreement, if you take the first step uh, and any retaliation you made against their sanctions, then we may reduce sanctions. That's the Iran on the Iran front. Now, with regard to Yemen, if, uh, Biden, it, it was the Obama administration with Biden as vice president, which sharply escalated the war against Yemen. Biden has said that the war should end. He has uh, suspended arms sales to Saudi Arabia. UAE had already pretty much pulled out. Uh, that's the main attack against the population. However, there's a loophole in Biden's declaration. It allows sale of defensive weapons to Saudi Arabia. Well, what are defensive weapons? Actually, anything you decide to call defensive. Uh, we don't know how wide this loophole will be. That we'll see. Depends on the pressures on the administration. There are pressures from the more progressive members of Congress, Bernie Sanders and others, and from uh, popular pressures, which could make a big difference. But as of now, there has been basically no change in the Trump policies, except for the indication 
that arms sales to Saudi Arabia will terminate as long as the war goes on, but with unspecified loopholes. Well, but having said that, um, I think it's also clear that the um, Biden administration and the people around him recognize that the policy of so-called maximum pressure has failed. And other analysts point out that Iran, as a matter of principle, won't agree to any revisions of the agreement because they would see that as setting a dangerous precedent that every time um, uh, there will just be escalating demands backed up by sanctions, effectively making any such agreement worthless. And um, uh, the Americans appear to have taken a position that they would like to see kind of um, uh, joint, well, um, Iranian, full Iranian compliance in exchange for the United States rejoining the agreement. And that doesn't seem to be going anywhere for the moment. So how do you see that playing out in practice in the months ahead, given that the Obama administration acted on the understanding that if there wasn't a limited agreement, the prospect of conflict increases very substantially. Well, first of all, I think it's uh, questionable to say that the policy failed. It has succeeded very effectively in wrecking the Iranian economy, causing enormous suffering. It's uh, on top of the COVID epidemic, uh, sharply limits Iran's capacity to deal with the epidemic. Uh, from the point of view of the US government, that's success. The goal is to punish the Iranians. Remember that the US has been engaged in punishing Iran with relentlessly without a break since 1979. Uh, we actually have new revelations on the Carter administration. So we can go back to that when 1979, when the Shah was thrown out, the Carter, Jimmy Carter himself, turns out when new documents have been released, took quite a hawkish stand. He took the same stand that was openly announced by his national security advisor, Brzezinski, and very strongly advocated by the Israeli government. Uh, the Israel and Iran under the Shah were very close allies. Technically, they were at war, but that was a fraud. Uh, it all became very clear as soon as the uh, revolution took place and lots of material appeared. Uh, Israel had a de facto ambassador in uh, Iran, Yaakov Nimrodi. He said straight out publicly that what the Iranian government should do, the military should mobilize and they should be willing to kill 10,000 people in the streets and that would put down the uprising and restore the Shah. Uh, Brzezinski took a somewhat similar position, less extreme in words. Turns out Carter supported it too. It was known that Carter had sent a, an American, a NATO general, Robert Heuser, to Iran. Uh, the purpose was not known. It is known clear as was suspected that his goal was to try to uh, 
and to organize the Iranian military to take strong measures to repress, repress the uprising. Well, he, he tried, they were unwilling to do it. They saw the way things were going, so that failed. Uh, immediately after that, very shortly after that, Iraq invaded Iran. Uh, the United States, this is now Reagan, strongly supported the uh, Iraqi invasion. Uh, the Iraqi invasion was murderous and brutal. Hundreds of thousands of Iranians were killed, many with chemical weapons. The United States was sporting it all the way. The United States went so far as to uh, deny uh, Iraq's uh, Saddam's uh, massacre of Iraqi Kurds with chemical weapons. Uh, Reagan claimed it was actually done by Iran. He, he of course, nonsense. He blocked congressional efforts to uh, even issue a condemnation of it. So what's Halabja? Halabja. At the end, uh, 1987, the U.S. intervened directly. Uh, U.S naval vessels began uh, escorting Iraqi vessels in the Gulf to prevent Iran from re uh, react from trying to limit their uh, Iraqi activities. Finally, an Iraqi uh, a U.S. Um, destroyer, the Vincennes, USS Vincennes, shot down an Iranian commercial airliner, killing 290 people in a clearly marked commercial airspace. Uh, the Vincennes went back to port, Norfolk, Virginia. The flight officer shot it down and the, and the commander got medals of honor. They were greatly praised by, that was then President uh, Bush uh, when they got back. Uh, Iran understood this and basically capitulated. Right after that, uh, we're now President Bush. Uh, Bush invited Iraqi nuclear engineers to the United States for advanced training in nuclear weapons production. So it's a very serious threat against Iran. Uh, Bush also said a, sent a congressional delegation led by uh, Robert Dole, congressional leader, later Republican party presidential candidate. They went to, this is a April 19, 2000, uh, to send his greetings, personal greetings to his friend Saddam and to uh, ensure Saddam that he should disregard critical comments that he hears in the American press. Uh, US government can't stop the press, but don't pay any attention. We're, we're, gonna, we're your friends, we love you new agricultural credits and so on. Well, then Saddam disobeyed orders, invaded Kuwait. We know what happened after that. Uh, meanwhile, the sanctions on Iran increased. Uh, harsh sanctions never stopped. Uh, finally, under Obama, uh, as Iran was increasing the number of centrifuges and moving towards possibly developing more advanced nuclear program, Obama finally agreed to the joint agreement, the JCPOA, uh, that Iran lived up to it completely. Actually, the US did not live up to it. It maintained interference with Iran's 
economy in a way which was contrary to the agreement, but it basically went along until Trump dismantled it. Then we're on to the current situation. It should be mentioned that uh, I think Trump has a point when he says that the joint agreement could be improved. The way it can be approved is very straightforward. Establish a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East. There are nuclear weapons free zones around the world. It's an important step. Could go into them. They're quite interesting. But uh, actually, they don't totally go into effect because the US refuses in each case can go into that. But in the Middle East, it would be very important. Is there any problem with that? There's certainly no problem with verification. That's been was very successful during the JCPOA period, even US intelligence agrees. So it could be a verified nuclear weapons free zone. The Arab states are strongly in favor of it. They've been advocate, they're the ones who initiated the proposal 25 years ago and keep banging on the doors demanding that it be instituted. Iran is very strongly in favor. It's been advocating it for years. Uh, the global south G77, now 132 countries, strongly supports it, been calling loudly for it. There's no objection in Europe. So why not do it? Very simple reason. US won't allow it. When it comes up in the relevant international forum, the US blocks it. Obama in 2015 simply vetoed it. In the United States, you don't talk about this. Uh, except in arms control circles, uh, where the reasons are perfectly obvious. The United States does not want Israeli nuclear weapons to be inspected in any way. In fact, the United States does not officially recognize that Israel has nuclear weapons. And there's a reason for, of course, everyone knows they do. Uh, there's a reason for it. If the US recognized that Israel has developed the nuclear weapons capacity, of course, outside the framework of international agreements, that would trigger US law, which bans US military and economic aid uh, to countries that do this. And neither political party in the United States wants to open that door. And regrettably, there is no popular pressure partly because all of this is basically unknown. It's, never, it's, it's all pu perfectly public, nothing secret about it. But uh, the media and the intellectual classes are disciplined enough uh, not to bring it up. It's a free country. I can talk about it any time I want. Audiences understand. Others can as well. But until there's some kind of real popular movement that would press for things like this, it's going to be in the background. But that could be done. And that would be the way to end whatever threat one believes Iranian nuclear programs pose. And we might ask ourselves, just what is that threat? What's it? Suppose Iran were to develop nuclear weapons. We have no idea whether they have any intention to. But suppose they did. What exactly would be the threat? Well, actually, US intelligence has given an answer to that question in its presentations to Congress uh, on the world situation, strategic situation. 
uh, the US Directive Intelligence has uh, informed Congress that if Iran, this is during the Obama years, if Iran were to develop nuclear weapons, it would be part of its deterrent strategy. Now, who is opposed to a deterrent strategy? In fact, they point out that Iran's entire strategic posture is deterrence. It's much weaker than its opponents, even in the region. It doesn't have anything near the military strength of uh, uh, the, Gulf, the Gulf family dictatorships, let alone Israel, or of course the United States. So it has a deterrent strategy. And if they're developing nuclear weapons, this would be part of their deterrent strategy. Well, who's concerned about a deterrent strategy? Only countries that want to feel free uh, to rampage at will in the region. They don't want deterrent. Uh, there are two such countries, the United States and Israel. So naturally, they don't want Iran to develop a deterrent strategy. Now, that's the basic picture. Regrettably, in the United States, though a very free country, you just can't talk about this. But I'd, I'd like to pick up a, a few threads um, from from your uh, last response. You mentioned uh, the Arab, the Gulf Arab states, um, and also popular movements in the U.S. and and the impact they could have on U.S. foreign policy. And here, maybe draw a link between. Biden's campaign rhetoric about, for example, holding Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to account uh, for the brutal murder of uh, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, um, claims that um, the military uh, dictator of Egypt, uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi, would be held to account. And now we see the transition to Biden in power where they have basically given Mohammed bin Salman a pass and we haven't really seen any movement on Egypt, that might be expected. But it also raises a question of whether you see popular pressure uh, developing within the United States um, on, on the government to take stronger positions uh, on these issues or whether you think it's going to be very slow to develop and have an impact. I think there's a great opportunity now for organizing strong popular opposition to U.S. government policies on Israel-Palestine, on Iran, on support for the dictatorships. Very strong possibility. The public, a lot of the public is already in support of doing something. In fact, it's quite interesting to look at popular attitudes on Israel-Palestine. I'm sure you've been following it closely, probably talked about it on the program, but to repeat, if you go back a few years, 15, 20 years, uh, public opinion was strongly supportive of Israel. I mean, for uh, I've been giving talks on these issues for 50 years. I had to have police protection if I was talking, even on my own campus couldn't walk back to my car without the police coming with me because they were worried about uh, the meetings were broken up, even meetings of uh, Jewish human rights activists, Israeli human rights activists. 
mid-90s, I invited Israel Shachak to talk at my university. Meeting was broken up by young people. Uh, you're not allowed to criticize Israel. That changed. Yeah. I think what changed it dramatically was Gaza. There was a very sharp change after Kast led. Very sharp. 2008, 2009. And it's grown since. By now, uh, people who identify themselves as more or less liberal are actually more supportive of Palestinians than of Israel. Uh, it's true of, especially true of young people. It's also true of young Jews. The support for Israel has shifted in the United States very clearly. It used to be in liberal circles. The Democratic Party was the support for Israel. It's shifted to the far right. Now support for Israel is Christian evangelicals, uh, most of whom are extreme anti-Semites, but they have their own reasons. Uh, Christian evangelicals, uh, ultra-nationalists, uh, security systems, uh, those sectors. That's where support for Israel rides. Now that means that there is an opening for a popular movement to develop. It's been very hard to get it to, to, to go, to move for lots of reasons. But there is an opportunity and I hope somehow it can be uh, pursued. There, there's a real opportunity to do things. Uh, for example, what I just mentioned would be very, it would be very appealing to a broad spectrum of Americans uh, to say, look, we should not be uh, giving trillions of dollars of foreign aid just in order to protect Israel's nuclear weapons. You get support from that quite a, quite broadly, not just on the left. Uh, it, on the Israel-Palestine issue, I think the same is true. The population basically never hears anything. Uh, so we should the, um, so should we perhaps credit uh, Netanyahu and the Likud for transforming support for Israel into a partisan issue in, in American politics, which used to have, as you noted, solid bipartisan support? Well, but you have to recognize, we have to bear in mind what Israeli politics is. Israeli politics is split between the extreme right and the far right. Those are the two positions. Uh, so yes, Netanyahu has made it greater support for the far right. So you would get some liberal support for Gantz, let's say, who's in favor of colonization, who's very proud of his destructive, murderous record in Gaza. That's the opposition to Netanyahu. Uh, this, uh, I mean, uh, what's happened in Israel is shocking. It's moved very far to the right. In fact, there's almost the remnants of the left are almost invisible. Uh, and uh, what's even more depressing is that Israel is one of the very few countries, actually the only one I know, where young people are more reactionary than their elders. That shows up in the polls. They've heard nothing their whole lives except uh, expansionism and repression. They, uh, uh, most of them don't even know what the green line is. 
as far as they're concerned, Maled Umeim is part of Israel. You know, why not? You can travel to it on a super highway. You never see an Arab. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice suburban area with subsidized villas, uh, hospitals, uh, a lake, uh, everything you want. So why isn't and how that do part you see the and how do you see the Biden administration um, dealing with this issue uh, in the coming years? Unless there's pressure, it's not going to do anything. I mean, the convenient thing to do is just not ruffle any feathers. Okay, if they uh, Israel has does have a powerful lobby, and it does have strong support in the right wing. Remember, evangelicals are about 25% of the American population. They're strongly in Trump's pocket. We haven't gotten rid of Donald Trump. He's still there planning to come back. Uh, he pretty much owns the voting base of the Republican Party. It's a minority party, but a very substantial part of the population. And for lots of structural reasons, it has inordinate political power way beyond its numbers. A lot of reasons for that. So that's a major force. And any move towards what you and I would call anything like a decent uh, solution in Israel-Palestine is going to arouse furor among the right wing. Biden doesn't want to face that. He has, remember, we should remember he has a very delicate position. Uh, on the domestic front, his moves have been, in my view, pretty reasonable, but he can barely get them through. Con uh, the Congress is divided. The Senate, it's 50-50. Uh, Mitch McConnell, who's the leading Republican figure, has a very, uh, basically runs the Senate, uh, is uh, very explicit on his goals. Actually, he made them explicit when Obama was elected in 2009. He said straight out, our task is to make sure that as long as the Democrats are in power, the country is ungovernable. They cannot achieve anything. Then no, it doesn't matter how much the public is harmed. That's our goal then it can be blamed on them and we can come back into power. That's what happened uh, with Obama's help, I should say. He moved to betray his voters very quickly. That alongside of McConnell's obstructionism meant that within two years, 2010, Obama had lost Congress, then paved the way onto Donald Trump. That's the strategy today. McConnell has made it very clear that the Republicans are going to block anything, anything they can. And the stimulus vote is quite striking. Uh, the majority of Republicans actually approve of the measures in the stimulus. And they know very well that their constituents strongly approve of them. They voted against Communist Party style. The maximal leader says, here's the line. You toe the line. You don't ask any questions. Doesn't matter what you think. Okay. And that, and McConnell has promised that that's going to happen on every issue. And if the Democrats try to get around it somehow, he'll just uh, basically 
use parliamentary means which do exist to make the Senate inoperable, won't meet even. Uh, they'll do anything to get back into power. They're desperate. They're a minority party. They know they can't win an election. They have to use desperate means to maintain power. Uh, just to illustrate, since January, uh, couple, several hundred, I think, over 250 measures have been introduced in state legislatures run by the Republicans to try to restrict voting. Not all voting, just restrict the voting of Afro-Americans, poor people are likely to vote Democratic. It's quite open. Uh, and we've got to restrict the vote or we can't win an election. We have to render the country ungovernable. We cannot come back into power. Uh, we obviously, the Republicans can't uh, gain votes on their actual programs. You can't come to voters and say, I'm the servant of the super rich and the corporate structure, and my duty is to harm you in every way. Please vote for me. You can't say that somehow. So what they do is try to switch it to cultural issues. That's the struggle that you see right now. Uh, Dr. Seuss uh, should be withdrawn from a library. The world's coming to an end. Uh, that's the political conflict in the United States. Actually, there's something, I don't know if you want to go into US politics, but there's something quite sure. interesting happening. Well, uh, the, the, both parties are basically factions of a business party, but the Republicans are more extreme. They're more extreme in their support for extreme wealth and corporate power. Uh, the Democrats abandoned the working class back in the 1970s. Uh, but there is some difference. Uh, you can see it in Trump's legislative program. Total giveaway to extreme wealth and corporate power, nothing for anyone else, just harm. Well, again, the uh, people who basically own the party and own most of the country, the, the, corporate, the corporate sector, extreme wealth, they have never liked Trump. He interferes with their image, the image they try to project of uh, uh, humane, uh, wonderful people who are working for your interests so you can trust us to run things. Uh, he obviously interferes with that. But they've been willing to tolerate his antics as long as he lines their pocket. And that he's been doing very graciously every day he's been in office. January 6th, that ended. There was a remarkable show of private power on January 6th. The main business organizations, Chamber of Commerce, CEOs of major corporations, unanimously made a strong statement to Trump saying too much you have to go, you're out. Well, it was very interesting to see what happened in, in the Senate, which depends heavily on corporate contributions. Mitch McConnell, others started criticizing Trump. They began to run for the exits. No, we can't support him anymore. The rich guys are telling us no. But when they ran to the exits, they couldn't go very far because they ran into the raging crowds 
that Trump has mobilized. He does have the voters in his pocket. Actually, support for him increased after January 6th. So they're caught. Who are they going to support? The rich donors who basically own and run the party or the horde of uh, raging uh, angry people who uh, are at Trump's beck and call. Party's torn. Uh, Democrats are, in a lesser sense, are also torn between the Clintonite, neoliberal, Wall Street-oriented mainstream that runs the party and the progressive wing, which pretty, which is very strong, maybe dominant even among the among voters and most, and particularly the younger voters. So they have their own problem, but among the Republicans, even more extreme. But going back to Israel, Palestine, in this kind of situation, where Biden has to be extremely cautious if he wants to get anything passed against the unified opposition of the Republican Party and Trump and his minions. He's not going to do anything that will ruffle any feathers unless he's pressured to. So unless absent any general popular pressure, I think we can expect Biden to continue with Trump's grotesque policies on the Middle East. And uh, pick, pick, sorry, sorry pick, picking up on that, um, uh, many others have said that you know the domestic challenges are, if not huge, then overwhelming, and uh, therefore the Middle East will hardly be on the list of the Biden administration's priorities. But finally, I'd like to turn to one issue. Um, that can't be avoided by the current administration, and that is Afghanistan and the prospect of a U.S. withdrawal from there. If you could comment um, on on where you see that heading in the coming months. Well, we have to go back to the beginning. In 2001, it was obvious that the invasion of Afghanistan was not only wrong from a moral point of view, but was also suicidal. There was no way in which the United States was going to achieve its objectives in Afghanistan. Uh, it had no reason to invade. This was an extremely unpopular position then, I should say. I was arguing right away the response to 9-11 is not to act to increase terrorism. If you invade Afghanistan, you invade Iraq, wrong for other reasons, of course it's going to increase terrorism. Even the CIA was warning about that. And in fact, that's what happened. 2001, what they call Islamic terrorism, was localized in a small section of the AFPAC border. Okay. Now it's all over the world. It's spread. It was a wonderful way to spread radical Islamic terrorism. Uh, so just from a plain, purely strategic point of view, it was crazy. Uh, Afghan uh, anti-Taliban activists made the same argument. Uh, the most, uh, uh, most prestigious of them warned 
that the United States was undermining their efforts to overthrow the Taliban from within. Uh, Abdul Haq was the main one and he was later killed. Uh, they said this is from every point of view the wrong thing to do. Now, the Taliban had made offers. We don't know how serious they were because they were rejected, but they had made some moves to try to separate themselves from bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and try to fend off an American invasion. Police actions would have been possible. Decided to invade, show a force, show our muscle. Okay, now you're in, country's a wreck. Taliban have uh, increasingly dominant in the countryside. Uh, there is a pocket of uh, some kind of liberalization in Kabul. It's a rather similar in some ways to the late days of the Russian invasion. By the late 80s, the Russians, the Russian invaders, brutal murderous invasion, hundreds of thousands killed. Uh, they'd lost the countryside. But in Kabul, uh, there was a wave of liberalization. Uh, women were protected. They were going to the university. There were no dress codes and so on. All of this was reported by uh, the UN observers. Couldn't publish it in the United States, but they published it in Asian journals. Uh, the uh, British ambassador, Roderick Braithwaite, an Afghan specialist, disgusted. Well, the Russians pulled out, uh, stopped giving support to the uh, uh, relatively popular uh, uh, government, which was attacked by the US-backed radical Islamic forces, destroyed Kabul, wrecked the country. It was such a horror story that people actually welcomed the Taliban when they came in. Now, we don't want to duplicate that story, okay? So I think I depart from some of my friends who say we just have to quickly withdraw. I don't think so. We created a horrible mess. We do not want to do what the Russians did. We want to somehow, if it's at all possible, allow Afghans to try to reach a peaceful solution. Very difficult, but there are peace forces and they can be supported. I think they're, they're asking us to just let them do it. Uh, what we should do about troops, hard to say. The mechanical reflex withdraw troops is much too easy. We just saw that in Syria. Uh, there was a small contingent of US troops in the Kurdish areas, Rojava, which were a deterrent. They weren't doing anything anymore. They were a deterrent to a Turkish invasion. Trump withdrew them. That opened the doors to Turkey expanding its murderous invasion, more atrocities, breaking into the Kurdish areas. Again, I was quite isolated among my friends and associates, but I thought the deterrent should be left. So you have to, you cannot follow mechanical principles. You have to ask, what are the human consequences? A lot of the choices are choices between bad alternatives. And we have to ask which alternative is the least bad, uh, given the circumstances that exist, 
many of them caused by our violence and uh, aggression, but they're there, can't wish them away. So I don't think it's a simple question in Afghanistan. Well, unfortunately, uh, few questions are simple, but uh, you've certainly given us enormous uh, food for thought on, on how to think these issues through and what can be done about them and, and how to approach dealing with them. Uh, Noam Chomsky, I'd like to thank you also on, on behalf of the Arab Studies Institute and all of our viewers for taking the time to be with us. And finally, I'd like to announce that our next episode will be on the International Criminal Court in Palestine. Um, it will be in early April and will provide further details on Jadalia's uh, social media. Thank you once again, Professor Chomsky. Um, and on behalf of uh, Arab Studies Institute and Connections, thank you very much for joining us. Very pleased to be with you. Thank you.